Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Benjamin Heckendorn. Uh, and I am your guest, Chris Craft. And we're your and hosts. We are the hosts. Po- Sorry. Parker Tillman. <laughs> and Stephen Craig. This is episode 153. Benjamin Heckendorn is an electronics hacking entertainment guru and former host of Element 14's The Ben Heck Show, and he likes to smell his own farts. Chris Kraft is a tinkerer currently working as a software engineer in the financial services industry. Extensive background in 3D printing and building anything that seems interesting. I think it's important to have a closed feedback loop on your farts so you know just how bad they are. That way you can analyze them. Like Do they a, evolve over time? Is are you? Well, are it you depends. On, track it depends on what you eat. You know. Okay, that's that's one of the inputs. Right. Right. Yeah. So both Ben and Chris were last seen on the podcast on episode seventy-five. Does the simulation match reality? So Ben and Chris, what have y'all been doing since then? It's been like almost two full years. Really, it's been that long. It's like two summers ago. That was back in the bomb shelter. Oh God, that place like, that got destroyed in the flood, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. You guys and and you guys either had right before or you were going right after to fly in a B seventeen bomber, right? Yeah, yeah. That was pretty awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. Because we had to go up into Houston, then we went back down to Galveston. Yeah, we went to the uh, we went to the battleship Texas. Yeah, I still have uh, my. My wallpaper on my computer, my big computer, is uh, from that flight. Nice. The Battleship Texas flight? <laughs> yeah. When we <laughs> flew around in a battleship. <laughs> <laughs> Smelling your own farts. <laughs> All I could smell was farts and diesel fuel as far as the nose could see. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so, so, yeah, what's, what's been up since then? My blood pressure. Actually, it's gone down, so it went up, <laughs> then down. Well, after, after, because you're not, it, you're the former host of the Element 14, the Ben Heck Show. Yeah, I stopped filming the Ben Heck Show in June of 2018. So since then, I've been working on some other projects that I've been wanted, wanting to improve over the years, but never had time to. And uh, yeah, I just kind of semi-retired, so I, well... I work like seven hours a day now. Uh, yeah. As opposed to uh, what was it before? Eight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there was there was a time when I was doing the show full time and working on pinball machines on top of that. So there were actually some pretty stressful years, probably like 2013, 2014, were pretty busy for me. So it's nice to kind of slow down. Right. And, and the... Uh I think we talked about this back in episode 75, but the pin hex system is sort of named for you, right? Yes, although I, I don't like that name, even though, well, Parker and I both designed it, but whatever. Somebody called it pin hex, so great. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want the Ben Heck show to be called the Ben Heck show. That was not my idea either. I think my favorite thing was about that. At near the end, y'all had a contest to change the name. Oh, of the show? Yeah, of the show. And then everyone said to keep the name. But they were they wanted to change the name because, the, you know, they knew I was leaving in a year. Yeah, yeah. But me leaving the show was a long, a long thought out process. There was like at least a year and a half. So 
I think I think they should have stuck to their guns and just changed the name then because then they had to scramble uh, last spring to do it. So uh, I, I actually haven't looked into it. Uh, what what's it called now? Now it's called Element Fourteen Presents. So what they did was they hired a whole bunch of different people to create content. So what they do is they, I think they have like oh like ten to fifteen people making stuff now. But what works works better about it is that. Each person, since there's so many people working on things, each person doesn't have to create something every week. It's basically, hey, whose project is done next? And then that's the video they produce. So they still have a weekly release schedule, but they're not burning out, you know, Ben and Felix. A single person? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you, so. you were doing a lot of work to have fresh and interesting content every single week. Yeah, and then if you do multi-part episodes, we're like, oh, it's part three of three building this clock or whatever uh, people viewership drops off very rapidly when you have multi-part episode projects. Yeah. That's something I think is interesting when you look at, cause you're now posting just your own videos on your own YouTube channel. And a lot of people are saying not a lot, a lot of the comments are, Oh, this is so much better. And I don't want to, reply to people in comments because it's just a minefield but it's I want to kind of say that the show was the way it is because it had to be that way for the viewership that they were going after and your private channel is great but you can get away with things that because you're not trying to please that audience well not just pleasing an audience but you know when you're representing a large company they want to create videos that meet a certain production standard. You know, they want the audio to be good. They want the lighting to be good because the way the videos are made reflects on the company. Whereas when I make my own videos, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you can go one way or the other. Do you get the curse on your on your YouTube channel? Actually, I don't because I actually monetized it. My channel's doing actually really well right now, strangely. Because, yeah, it's like I just make long videos with all the detail the way I want to. And yeah, actually my videos now are more popular than the show was the last couple of years. <laughs> it's wow. weird. Yeah. I think the point I'm trying to make is that the people who like those long, more detailed videos, but when you try to do that on the show, there were people complaining about it. So it's like, you can't win. Well, and also this came from the revision three days, but there was definitely a push to keep everything no longer than 20 minutes. And so you end up having a lot of, you have to edit out a lot of the uh, steps and basically sh show just the overview of it. Uh, but the thing that the irony of that is YouTube rewards watch time more than views. That's why like Let's Plays and whatnot became so popular on YouTube because it's really easy just to sit there and play a video game for an hour and create an hour long video, which actually YouTube will reward that over like an amazing two minute animation. I guess my point is having longer videos on YouTube is actually desirable, but we were trying to keep things at 20 minutes. Yeah, well, it used to be the YouTube algorithm was like going towards 12 minutes was like the ideal time frame, and now it's changed. Well, it probably changes like every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The AI at YouTube. Yeah, so I just I bought a 4K camcorder from Best Buy, and that's, that's cool because you can just... Uh, 
you record in 4K, but then you make a 1080p video. But if you want, any time you can basically like zoom in 200% for free because you're recording twice the pixels. And then I just I just clamp it to the desk, turn on my overhead lights, which I have pretty good lighting in my basement. And then I just talk. I did get feedback that it's in stereo, and people are like, "Oh, your voice is either to one side or the other." And I'm like, "Well, I'm not going to wear a lav, damn it." However, in the future videos, I will mix them down to mono, so you, you can't tell. Probably makes sense. I guess that st- the speaker, or not speaker, the microphone is a stereo microphone. Right, and the camera is either to one side of me or the other, which I guess headphone uh, listeners noticed it more than anyone else. But Yeah, I think podcasts are mono. Yeah, should, they should be, yeah. There's yeah. no, there's no, I mean, what's the point of having a stereo voice? <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, well, you can, you can it doesn't put work that one way. person on the left and one person on the right. So there's a little bit of separation. Yeah, you, you can do that, but but it, a lot in a lot of ways it starts to get disorienting when you when you do that. So uh, it's a it's a lot easier to let I guess whatever the room is doing dictate where the people are as opposed to like artificially pushing them to one ear or the other. Okay, Chris, you should tell us what you've been up to since the last podcast. Let's see. Um, I I dabbled in resin SLA printers. Uh, but I haven't done it much just because after a few prints, the, the print quality is absolutely astounding. I mean, what you can get out of a resin printer is amazing. The thing that they don't really sell you or that they don't really kind of give you the whole picture is it's messy and smelly when you work in it. Like even if it doesn't smell when it's in the printer, once you go, once you take the print out and then you go to cure it, it's that whatever that fume is. So then you need a well ventilated area, and the the you got to wear uh, gloves. Well, you should wear gloves when you when you're handling this stuff, and uh, it it because it's photosensitive, you kind of need to store it properly. And at the end of the day, I just felt like as cool as it is because I'm not doing it as a a commercial entity. I'm not selling prints to anyone. I, I just, for now, the printers kind of sit in the corner, and uh, I don't know if I'll scavenge it for parts. But I definitely have. I've kind of have the attitude of been there, done that. I don't need to go back right now. So, I think if if you were using it for a business, like you're making jewelry or something. And you had a workflow in place where you could easily manage all that post-processing that it requires. That might be different, I think. But for a hobbyist, yeah, like it's just I, I've, I've, I had the Form 1 printer for a while. They sent me one and I actually sent it back because it was such a pain just to deal with the prints. I mean, they looked amazing, but everything about it was the amount of effort it took to get the high quality prints, I did not feel was worth the high quality. And for me, it wasn't really what I used 3D printers for anyway. Yeah. The, I mean, it's almost like when people used to have uh, do amateur photography and they'd have a photography studio in their homes where they'd have a developer and the cleaner and, and all those steps. And that's kind of like because you'll have your thing with a 3D print and then you take it out and you dip it into like an alcohol bath and then you dip it in another bath to clean it and then you put it under the curing light and as you said if you had a space set aside and and a, like a ventilated area and you had a workflow set up it's it's fine but for me i, I just um i i've done it 
and I'm ready to move on to something else. Versus an FDM printer where you pull it off the bed and it's ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, the um, except, except for me, I guess, because my FDM printer, I print polycarbonate and I have to like bake it afterwards. Bake it? Yeah, you have to bake it at 100 degrees Celsius to like relax the plastic. Oh, so it's not under tension? Yeah. You, you can do that with a lot of uh, newer PLA materials, too, where they'll have you bake it in an oven, uh, like a toaster oven. That's what I do with mine. <laughs> yeah. I, my dilemma there is I, I bought, I went to Menard, or no, Walmart, Ben's favorite uh, store, and, and bought a toaster oven. That is not my favorite store. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, the lady at the checkout, the lady was like, oh, this is really nice. What, you know, what are you going to m- cook with it? And I didn't have the heart to tell her I was just going to use it to bake a bunch of plastic pieces and never use it for anything else. Because I don't like commingling my food and my uh, uh, raw plastic materials. That's reasonable. I have my solder paste in the lowest drawer of my refrigerator. <laughs> Actually, at Macrofab, for the longest time, we used the freezer to store our paste. <laughs> Until we got enough people to we're like, we're like, okay, we need a separate fridge now. Now we can justify a paste. A <laughs> we uh, at, at work, we may or may not have had paste in the butter drawer in the uh, the break room fridge. That's where my solder paste is. It's in the right next to the butter. <laughs> well, and my, at mine's mine mine's in a tube in a bag inside of a plastic bin with a lid so you know a couple layers of abstraction yeah, that's it's totally fine anyway yeah so you guys wanted to talk about 3d printers today yeah and um so chris go ahead and uh take the first topic there yeah so i've been following this uh project called the hang printer and um i'm not sure how i found out about it initially but and it's probably hard for people to it's hard to explain once you see it, it makes a lot of sense, but it kind of grew out of the idea of a delta printer where the print head in a delta printer is kind of hanging down onto the build surface. And in a delta printer, there's usually three kind of legs going up that the there's three axes that it, that the print head hangs off of. And by the way they interact, they can either go up or left or right or you know whatever direction so you get all the axes that way with a delta printer and what what this uh which i apologize i don't have his name in my notes um what he came up with was instead of having those legs he basically hangs the ax the three axes from the ceiling essentially and then puts the motors on the floor and he uses cables to go up and then down and by doing that, essentially your print area is as large as the area you can put the printer in. And you, so you basically clamp it to the ceiling. So if you had a large space, you could, this thing could be printing things, you know, 10, 20 feet tall. Um, it's still kind of in, in the works. So he's made a lot of progress, but it's, he's still working on it. How does the Z work? I'm looking at the animation right now. Just just like with a delta printer, if all three, if you were to pull all three of the wires at the same time, it's going to go up. 
It actually reminds me of a Skycam that they use for football. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, example. Yeah. So so it's just it's a system that's constantly in tension. Three points or multiple points, maybe not three. I'm not exactly sure how this works, but multiple cables that are in tension and basically by pulling or releasing tension on one or two or three of them, you can change the X, Y, and Z, right? But if it's attached to the ceiling, are those wires changing as well? Well, the pulley will be... what what You'll attach something to the ceiling that then the wires go up and then over and then down to the printer. Oh, so there's a pulley on the ceiling? Basically, yeah. I mean... Oh, okay. He, he has... I mean, he's gone through a couple different iterations, but the one I saw, there were plates that went on the floor. Well, it, it keeps changing, so you, you have to look at it to see uh, what the latest uh, iteration is. But And it probably depends on the, uh, the space that needs to be set up in and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and he's done demos of it in different spaces to kind of show how it's it can change its shape depending on the... Uh, the, the area that it's in. Uh, I, I really like it because for years, the 3D printing's been kind of, at least on the FDM side, it's been, you know, we had the traditional kind of just what we're all used to now. And then the Delta printers came along and those were pretty cool, but not really. The Delta design never really made a lot of sense to me in the sense that you don't need that speed for FDM printing. So is that the difference between like a normal Cartesian uh, pr- printer or setup than versus Delta is speed? And, yeah, at least in industry. Like if you look at any places, factories where they have high speed packaging robots, you'll always see Delta printers because they can like uh, – pick things up and put them down and rearrange things super fast. Um, I think that the problem with the Delta 3D printers is that you still can't extrude as fast as the Delta robot can move. So you're, you're limited by the extrusion. Yeah, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. But with this hang printer, he's kind of turned that around so that now, because you don't have these solid structures, you can make it as big as the space that you have available. So how accurate is it? It's okay. It's not great. Not yet. He's, you know, working on that. Um, but, and that's, and I mean, it's an open source project and people are free to contribute. I think the one area where I would, like if I actually was talking to the guy and trying to encourage him, he's pushing this idea that it's cheaper because it's simpler, uh, which is true. But for me, the idea is so appealing that to me, I would say, don't even think about making, don't focus on the fact that it's cheaper. Instead, focus on how kind of amazing this is from a from a potential functionality standpoint and focus on, you know, consistency and, and you know, the functionality of it. And I, I wouldn't really focus on the cheap stuff because there's been other projects where, They've come along and said, you know, we're super cheap. And then... You mean like the peachy printer? <laughs> I was going to bring up PrinterBot. A PrinterBot, yeah. The thing is, they work, but then when the focus is just on the price, that's what you're kind of known as, is it's cheap. And then you make all these compromises to make it cheap. And then you're suddenly out of headroom for 
oh, you know, we'd really like to use a higher quality part in this, but we promised that it would be, you know, cheap to make. Or like you focus on 3D printed parts and, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's work better with milled parts. So, um, so that's why I'd, I'd be like, you know what, this is such a cool idea. Don't, don't worry about it. The fact that it's cheaper. Well, that's one thing about um, like PrinterBot. Their big thing when they came out on Kickstarter was they were a inexpensive, quote, cheap, unquote, printer. And the thing about doing that is all it takes is someone just to undercut you at that point. Well, they were they were the cheapest printer at the time until all the Chinese clones started showing up. Well, that's what I mean is they started, you know, basically people moved their manufacturing over to China and just undercut everyone like you know like replicator 2 makerbot like got cloned to hell yep that's true and so if you if you if you're basically your one shining thing that your product is is just it's cheaper than the competition someone's going to come along and make a cheaper version of that and that's going to be their shining achievement of their product and if so if you're designing something that it's the only thing that's good about it is it's cheaper. You probably want to do something else. What did they say? You need to be the cheapest, the first, or the best? Yes. With a product? Yeah. One of those yeah. three. And again, I would say in this case, he has such a unique and innovative product that to me, that's your, you know, that's your headline feature. So yeah, He's first to do this kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And to me, it's just interesting because I, I could see this. It might not be practical, but in my mind, because it's just these cables, you know, I could see a printer, you know, using like huge cranes to hold up the axes, you know, and then have your cement just kind of blobbing out of the thing so you could print like building-sized objects. Which thing, things of that sort do exist, just I don't think they use the technology of hanging with cables and you know what's what's sort of going through my head right now as i think about how this thing actually operates is if you think of the build envelope of the size that the head can actually move around it seems to me that it, there would be some trouble if the head moves close to one of the where the cables meets a pulley uh in terms of the xy location that you you have a lot of problems with the head potentially rotating or having an angle to it depending on how the cable actually leaves the pulley and has to uh, you know, come down to the head at a specific angle. It's really hard to describe this stuff using just audio. Yeah, but, but, it but, is. But like with the Delta system, they're rigidly connected to the arms. Even though the arms do have the ability to uh, uh, rotate, it, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of stuff to overcome with that. But you, you'll notice that even with Delta printers, the beds are always circular. And that's because the, there is a restriction on the build area. And uh, there is, I mean, that is one of the limitations of the hang printer. Although I think in one of the videos, they kind of explore that and they've been working to make that build envelope bigger. But it's, if you didn't need to print something at that height or that, or that scale, then I would not say it's your solution like if someone's saying oh i want a printer for my house i'd be like well no no it's build one because you think it's cool but 
don't plan on that as being your day-to-day, you know, go-to printer. Oh, just convert your entire, like, guest bedroom into a ginormous printer? Yeah. But, like, I think in, in one of the examples, he was printing that the Tower of Babel at, uh, I think it was an art uh, gallery or something. And I, I think it ended up being two flights tall or something like that. And it's... Like to actually do that with a traditional printer, even a Delta, you need physically it needs to be that tall. And then, you know, the taller it gets, the harder the structural stability gets. Well, you should definitely include some links to videos to this printer in your topics so people can visualize it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We'll post the links in uh, the YouTube videos. They look really cool. And, and then the other thing that I found while researching the hang printer is his latest generation uses this uh, O drive from uh, O driver optics. Yeah. And we'll have that in the notes too, but, uh, and it's a, it's a motor controller designed to basically take like hobby grade brushless, brushless DC motors and give you the, the kind of fine servo and closed loop feedback motor control uh, as an alternative to stepper motors. Oh, these are cool. And I don't know how that'll work because people have been trying to use DC motors for a long time at a lower price level, but if it works, it could be really cool. Like the cupcake printer back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. On the extruder, I mean, all the extruders initially were DC motors, and but I'm saying like just in general at a because years ago, many years ago, back in the late 80s, I worked in industry where we were using DC, large DC motors with closed loop servo feedback and all that stuff. But they were super expensive because uh, that kind of control was just expensive. But who knows with you know, modern technology, anything's possible. I'm, I'm looking at the demos. This, uh, I think it's actually O-Drive Robotics, not O-Driver Optics, ah, uh, or robotics. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, drive robotics. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, this thing is fast. These are so much faster than like the stepper-based uh, X Y tables I've seen. So this is cool. They probably also uh, stepper motors lose torque really fast with uh, faster speeds. I bet you these hang on to torque a lot further into higher speeds. And it looks like he's using like basically brushless motors that you would buy for RC robotic, uh, not robotics, RC cars and planes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it's looking like. And they have that, uh, yeah, they have that really specific sort of banana style connection. Yeah, it's basically quadcopter motors, right? Yeah. But like beef, beefy quadcopter <laughs> motors. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a draw bot that looks really cool. I mean, you definitely benefit from tapping into more commodity parts. If it works, it'll be pretty amazing. Uh, like, because the encoders are always super expensive, too. So I'd be curious to see how he's approaching that. Well, I'm going to take a look at, into that uh, in, in the future. Nice. And so going off uh, 3D printer topics, MakerBot came out with a new printer. Oh, the MakerBot method. Oh, that what, yeah. that's what it's called? A performance performance 3D printer. Mm. Uh, 
what is what is what is that supposed to entail? Expensive? Yeah, a lot of us have been talking about it. We don't know what performance three D printer means. Um, it's it's a confusing uh, term. I think it means, as you said, it's sixty five hundred dollars. Is it really? I think it's yeah. it's kind of like it reminds me of a lot. It's like a prosumer product. Well, they, they say it fuses industrial performance with desktop accessibility. It it seems well. We were talking about PrinterBot earlier, and it seems like what's happening is the remaining players are going up market. I mean, we're seeing this with Baker Gear as well. Uh, they're going up market because the low end has been completely overtaken by mono price stuff. I mean, yeah, I've got a mono price printer, and for five hundred bucks, you cannot beat that printer. <laughs> when I would go to trade shows or maker fairs, and random people always asked. What's the cheapest I can build a printer for? What's the cheapest printer? Cheap, cheap, cheap. Well, that's all, you know, people always want the cheapest thing. And now you can get, you can get like, what, a $175 printer for mono price? Yeah, their low-end one is, yeah. And, and the funny thing is, I think it was like quite a few years ago, and we might have even talked about this on the last podcast, but uh, people were always saying to me, oh, once they figure out, you know, get rid of the steppers and put DC motors in there and do this and that. They'll be able to buy a 3D printer for no more than what it costs to buy an inkjet printer. And then they'll be in every home. And I said back then, I, I, w- I said, no, they'll never be in every home because there's not a laser printer in every home. There's not an inkjet in every there home. There should be a laser printer in every home. <laughs> but that's the thing is a inkjet printer has steppers in it still. So I don't think that's a good argument. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, the thought was if you make it cheap enough, they'll be in every home. And I said, nope, it won't matter how cheap you make it because if you don't need a 3D printer, if you don't know how to make it work, then you won't buy one. Just like not everyone goes out and buys an inkjet printer. And I said at the time, the growth area will be the prosumer because at that time, the cheapest, the absolute cheapest printer you could get was like fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars. So if you could say sell a printer for six grand, this was the argument I had like six years ago. Was if you sell a printer for six grand and it's capable, it has the same capabilities. You've, you'll destroy the market because all those engineering firms and all those people will want to buy those printers and put them on every one of their engineers' well, desks. I think that's what MakerBot is hoping to do. You know. Obviously, you know, they're not going to buy a cheapy monoprice printer. But if it's like, oh, well, instead of having like a $25,000 straight assist printer, here's a $6,500 printer, which has comparable quality. I think that's what they're going for. Yeah. And they're owned by Stratasys now. So and that's another thing I noticed was it seems like they're preferring technologies that Stratasys either already has a patent on or that they can patent. Uh which, again, makes sense because Stratus is, I think, within MakerBot and since Stratus has bought them, I think their attitude is the, the world stole from them, which is incredibly inaccurate for anyone who remembers the history. It's more the other way around. But so I think going forward, they're going to be pushing these technologies that they have patents on. I think it's... Um they're going towards reliability. Like, instead of buying a 
$300 monoprice printer that you have to basically babysit it while you're printing stuff or tweak it to make sure it prints good prints. Um, I could see MakerBot basically going, okay, let's make something that's really reliable. So you all you have to do is take it out of the box, put it on that engineer's desk, and the engineer hits print, and it prints. Yeah, I guess the uh, filament is stored in a uh, sealed chamber, so humidity can't affect it on that printer, on the MakerBot method. Yeah, underneath it, like under the bed, it's stored. And then it doesn't It doesn't have a heated uh, build platform, apparently? It does not have a heated build platform. They claim that it's superior design to heat the chamber and just let the ambient temperature heat up the build platform. I mean, when I was printing with PLA, I never used a heated bed. I just printed on tape. I still use a heated bed with PLA. I use a heated bed, but I just print right on glass. So I found that around... It depends on the the temperature, but somewhere around 80 degrees Celsius, a clean piece of borosilicate glass, PLA will just stick to it like it's glued on. So how are they heating the chamber? Are they... Is it just a sealed chamber and it heats passively from the print nozzle, or do they have some sort of active heating element? It's the smugness of MakerBot. Yeah. Breathing it's, into it's it, all the hot hard, air. It, it's hard to tell because they just have some fancy animation on their website, but I my guess is there's a pelter, some kind of uh, pelter in there somewhere, and then something to circulate the, the air around. That would be my guess. So it's a miniature inverse dorm refrigerator? Yeah. Mm. I mean, it works. I've used pelters to uh, go in the opposite direction to warm up a, a pie once. So, Like the kind you eat or a raspberry pie? Yeah. The, an actual, edi- yeah, an, an edible pie. Yeah. I almost kind of wonder if MakerBot, if it's, okay, so if you can make a printer that works for 300 bucks, and MakerBot's making their stuff overseas anyway, so there's not that aspect anymore. Maybe it's like, Okay, if we can make a decent printer for 300 bucks in China, but we're MakerBots, so we can make a really good printer for like $2,000, but then we'll sell it for $6,500, so businesses will take it seriously. Oh, and, you know, if you look at their site, they're offering, basically, you buy this with support as well. Yeah, and I think for sure there's, there was a point in time where, like, schools and a lot of places bought MakerBot because of that reason. You got support. It was, quote, reliable, but they had so many problems with their last generation of... Uh, extruder? Yeah, in, in the, the smart extruder, they called it, which a lot of people derided. Um, there were places that were getting replacement smart extruders, like, every month, and just they were just constantly shipping new ones well, out. Well, and then and, they, uh, they, they fixed it by drilling a separate hole in it. Because the main problem was that the filament enters and then basically does like a 45-degree turn around a uh, encoder wheel. And as you know, Chris, there's a lot of filaments that are quite fragile. And, yeah. And you, know, you can break them easily with your fingers. And that's what was happening. As they go around the encoder wheel, the curve was too tight and they were, they were cracking. So what you do or what they did to fix it was actually drilled a different hole straight down that the filament could enter into, leaving the original entry point on the back like a useless prehensile tail. <laughs> so so I think, but it'll be interesting to see if how well this goes because I've talked to, granted there are people from competing companies, but I've talked to a couple 
people from competing companies that said their business just went crazy and it was all former MakerBot customers and they said the reason why their their business exploded was because all those people were sick of dealing with MakerBot printers that weren't functioning so they were ready to buy anything that was more guaranteed to work so is it too late you know for them MakerBot to get that business back you know I, I don't know well I mean how much cachet does the name really have I mean if you think about like you know we all remember when the 3d printing became hot you know what eight whole years ago it wasn't that long ago really to think about yeah. it um and you know for better or worse MakerBot did lead the charge you know and there's no reason joseph prusa you know it's like it's like the difference between like a wozniak and a jobs you know brie was jobs and prusa was wozniak <laughs> right well <laughs> i would say even within MakerBot. There were people who you would say, because there was three founders of MakerBot. Yeah, that's and right. And the two that that are no were were essentially pushed out were your Wazes, basically. Yep, and then all that was left was Bree. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, because one of them's at uh, Maker Gear now. Is he? I didn't. Yeah, know. one of the founders of MakerBot. Yeah, it was funny. He was. We were. We were talking about. I think we we're at this bar doing a flight. And he was like, yeah, I remember I was back there at the very beginning when, like, we were, like, living, we had we staying in the same room and, like, sharing a mattress. We were so broke huh. with Bree. But then now, you know, one person cashes out and the other person's left behind. I guess that's business. So I, I did a quick search on Kickstarter for 3D printers and see if there was 3D printers, like, having active campaigns. And there are three right now. That's it? Uh, a lot of them have been completed already, and so they're probably not going to get their stuff because that's just how it goes. Um, but the best thing about it is all three of them have in their titles the most affordable blank. Yeah. So, like, the most affordable ceramic printer, the most affordable metal SLA, the most affordable 3D printer ever. Now, you should you should compare that to how many active wallet Kickstarters there are right now. Oh, this. What, 80 of them? <laughs> yes. and, and my plea is for people to not buy printers off of Kickstarter. And unless they are something strange or experimental, but generally I say, if don't, first thing, you can find them cheaper. You can find them cheap, fairly cheap anywhere, mono price, whatever. But the other thing is, imagine you get a printer off of Kickstarter and it works perfect let's say for the first six months and then it a part breaks on it the kickstarter is over for all you know the guy he could be t completely legitimate and still be gone because kickstarter is a point in time so you're saying that things could be just peachy but you'd still be up a creek without a paddle uh yeah <laughs> yeah i would say if you're if you're buying your first printer i i, I personally Go to Monoprice, buy something there. They've they've made hundreds and thousands of those printers, and so there's parts everywhere. Didn't you update the firmware on yours recently, Parker? Yeah, I, that was actually the first time I ever dabbled in the open sourceness of of the maker or the uh, 3D printer community. Don't most of them use Marlin anyway? Yes. Okay. 
quite a few. I mean, there's other alternative. There's other popular alternatives like Repetir, and you know, there's there's a few others, but Marlin is the standout. I mean, Parker, I mean, that's surely not the first microcontroller you flashed, so it shouldn't have been shouldn't have been that scary for you. No, no, that that part wasn't scary. It was the whole like downloading the source and and getting that to compile correctly and that kind of stuff. Because usually with open source projects, at least the ones I've used, um, they just go, here's the source code, and then you spend four days trying to get past compiler errors. Oh, that reminds me that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember about three years ago, three or four years ago, when all of those like $500 MakerBot Replicator 1 clones started showing up on eBay. Yeah, yeah before, I bought one. Before mono price. Uh, but there was one, I think Andrew got one, and it had this dongle on it the dongle was like a consumable did i ever tell you about that no oh it was so jank so it, you know you know it's one of those 500 hundred dollar printers but this one okay so you had to have a filament dongle right so you buy you had to buy a roll of filament from them and it came with a usb dongle and you stuck it in the machine and then and this came once, from china yes it was one of those 500 dollar printers but so we we took it apart and it wasn't even a USB device. The USB dongle was power ground and then uh, I, I2C to an EEPROM, which was basically just counting down until the dongle was inactive. And, and you could just write whatever number you wanted to it. Well, we just reflashed it uh, using the AVR ISP Mark II with Marlin because, of course, it was just a MakerBot clone. But yeah, so basically it was, well, it was a, it was um, this Marlin firmware that they added basically an I squared C consumable dongle check to. DRM. So jank. <laughs> uh, That's crazy. Yes. I wonder if, if that company is still around. I doubt it. Chris, remember the old days of having to wrap Nichrome wire around screws and then covering it with like putty? I remember, yeah. Is that to make your own heaters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in the day, we would take, yep, nichrome wire, wrap it around a barrel or like, I think the first one I ever made, first extruder I ever made, I used a TIG welding tip and then, yep, wrap the nichrome wire around it and put some ceramic paste on it. and That was back when uh, Maker Gear, they kind of got their start making the good extruder for the cupcake. Right, yeah. Because it was a stepper. Because at the time, the, the cupcake was using a DC motor, but then Maker Gear was a stepper motor with a gearbox on it, and it worked so much better. Even before that, Maker Gear started because uh, at the time, the Maker bot, their extruder would jam up constantly, and then you'd have to try to clean it out, and you'd have all this ABS stuck in there, and you either could burn it out or, you know, soak it in acetone but i wanted to have a spare in case because i actually broke one of my barrels trying to remove the the nozzle from it and i contacted them they're like sorry we have no spares we're not going to have any spares until we finish shipping out uh, orders and I i don't know how but i ended up getting in contact with maker gear and he had he was making replacement parts barrels nozzles and uh insulators so i bought the parts from him and put it on my printer same dc motor same everything else just 
new barrel extruder and uh, nozzle barrel and ins- heat insulator. The second I put that on, I didn't have another jam after that. So I was sold because he basically, his parts made my printer functional. Awesome. Hey, what's this topic? Consimble? I'm sorry. Consimble. What's this topic? Consider the humble loofah? Loofah, yeah. Oh, is that that plant that looks like a sponge? It is a sponge. I was thinking the other day about how different additive manufacturing is than traditional subtractive or even casting, where like forever we've made things by grinding them or cutting them and getting them into the shape we want. But with additive, it's you're basically growing the shape you want. And uh, I think that's really different. It's a different way of manufacturing. It's a different way of thinking about manufacturing. And as you get to lower and lower levels, you know, you're eventually just moving you know, molecules around or even atoms around. And once you get to that point, like all of manufacturing could radically change. If a machine can literally just push molecules into positions, then, you know, the manufacturing will just be amazing. And then it dawned on me that there is something like that right now. And that's the way nature works. (laughs) Yeah. Everything biological, it grows out of raw materials and, you know, there's molecular machines that are following DNA codes to construct whatever it is that it's growing. And I mentioned the loofah because a lot of people ha- own loofah sponges and they don't even know where they come from. They just have a loofah sponge. They think it's either made or they, they literally just don't have any idea. And yet it comes from this thing that looks like a giant zucchini or something. And then they peel it apart and process it and pull out the, the loofah sponge. And yet when you look at the interior of a loofah sponge, it looks like the infill from a really fancy 3d print uh, algorithm. You know, you know, we should have that as an infill option. And your slicer. Lufa? Yeah. Lufa, yeah. Lufa option. Um, you, you could never, well, I shouldn't say never, but trying to program a slicer to produce infill like that would be insane. And yet I imagine within a Lufa, it's just growing. It doesn't even have an algorithm. You know, it just happens. Well, it's probably, you know, procedural in nature. There's like a base seed to it. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Yeah. And that dictates the manner in which it grows. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, Chris, all technology is basically reverse engineering of nature. I, I would agree, except the way we've been doing it, like with heavy manufacturing, you know, being milling machines and, and CNCs, that's not the way nature does things. And that's why I think this is interesting, because if you imagine using a technology like CRISPR, and let's say you reprogrammed a, a watermelon's DNA so that when it was done growing, you cracked it open, and instead of being watermelon, it was, I don't know, a liver. Or, well, or, uh, we, you know. we did already reprogram watermelon DNA. I mean, watermelon is quite different than it was hundreds of years ago. Like Much like a dog, it's been bred into a different kind of, kind of fruit. It, I, I, I think, uh, what, what, I, I don't remember exactly what book it is, uh, but Richard Dawkins has a, a book where he dedicates an entire chapter to uh, cabbage, and the fact that cabbage as we know it just 
flat out did not exist. That is entirely like a genetically engineered vegetable that we created. There's quite a few uh, of those, like bananas. Bananas wouldn't exist at all because it can't reproduce by itself right now. Well, in, in the banana, what was the most common banana was wiped out by a, you know, a banana plague <laughs> or something like that. And uh, that's how we ended up with the bananas we have now, although there's a new plague forming that they say if that hits, bananas might cease to exist completely. So We'll have to 3D print them. Yeah, get them while, they're, while you still can. Uh, yeah, and like corn is another example of that's, you know, modern corn doesn't look at all like what corn looked like a hundred years ago. So, but that's usually, I mean, there's some genetic engineering. Some of it is genetic engineering just by crossbreeding, but. Or selectively picking the plants and. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, selecting dogs with short legs and a thousand years later you have a corgi. Yeah. Or crossbreeding corgis with huskies to make. Huskies with tiny legs, um, which sounds terrible. But Horgies? <laughs> husky. Hor- ho- yeah. Hoagies. Um, I mean, really, if, if you think about it, it's, it's you have a species, humans, and they're smart enough to actually affect the evolution of the creatures around them. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. But if you think about it, it's still all part of nature because, you know, would you say uh, a beaver damming up a, a river is unnatural? I mean, it's a creature just like us. Yeah. Well... And but imagine like if you could this, you know, like the loofah, which is a natural plant. But like imagine you had a zucchini that you cut open and it had tenderloin steak in it because and it's already cooked. <laughs> even, yeah, and then it's like, well, what do you say to someone who's vegan? You know, it's like, well, it's a plant. You know, it just produced meat. I mean, if, if if you're talking about it that way, I mean, yeah, you, we had the. Um, Subtractive manufacturing or cast manufacturing for thousands of years. Now we have additive manufacturing, but what you're talking about is still, you know, several steps even beyond that. Organic manufacturing? Uh, yeah, what I'm saying is. And at which point you'd basically become a god. Yeah, I don't know about that. But. <laughs> yes, you totally would be a god because you'd be creating things that, that are life that actually can, like, you know, build themselves and sustain themselves. Wait, okay, so... Like, so wait, wait, if you, when you get pregnant, you don't have to sit there and 3D print a baby. It just kind of pops out. Right. <laughs> every, every every pregnant <laughs> woman listening to this, oh, it just pops out. <laughs> right. So, wait, uh, g- given given Chris's example of, I guess, the lever melon, uh, the, the, the lever inside <laughs> of a melon, we... It, I guess there's life in that lever at that point, or like a, a craftsman wrench inside of a melon husk. Well, yeah, I mean, like, if you can, if a plant can, if the if the biological material in a plant can move molecules around, then if you were to feed enough, say, iron into the nutrient bath for the plant, I don't know why it couldn't just move the molecules around. So, yeah, you cut it open and find a wrench. So. I think I think there's randomness to that as well because you know all of your loofah sponges aren't going to be identical. They're going to be different based off their environments and the light and the shade. And like you can see that with a house plant, like you can move it around and then it'll actually start moving toward the light source. So now if you're trying to like create a wrench inside of that. Well, you might get a 10 millimeter or you might get a half inch. You don't know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, I think before you even would need to do that, 
I think you know, as you were talking about just like, you know, additive manufacturing with molecular uh, manipulation is probably something that would happen before we're able to actually grow our own wrenches. So you're talking like building a Star Trek replicator then? I, I guess so. I mean, I don't know exactly what the quote science uh, behind a replicator is, but if it's a similar idea that they're um, using molecules, you know, or using something to be able to assemble something out of component. I guess that's my point is, is that everything around us is, is made by collections of molecules. So if you achieve the point where you could manufacture at that level, move molecules around, you could literally grow anything. Right. But would it be growing? I mean, if you're, you know, if you have a machine that's moving molecules, that's different than growing because Things that grow, grow themselves. Oh, right, right. I meant, when I meant grow, I meant additive manufacturing. That, you know, it would, it would construct, instead of being constructed by taking something and banging away at it, you'd, it would grow in the sense that, like, when you watch a resin printer, it's like the object seems to be growing out of it. Right. So, you, basically, what you're talking about is additive manufacturing is at a much, 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 much smaller scale. Yeah, yeah. And I th- I, because if you think about it in a way, you talk about subtractive manufacturing. In the end, you're taking a 1.75 millimeter filament and you're mechanically, basically, making it smaller and then squirting it out. But, yeah, I mean, they, they, I mean, they can move, you know, they make molecular pictures already. That's already a thing. So it'll happen. And, and honestly, I think one of the areas that that really can shine in is the area of, of uh, small electronics. Like we're already at the point where the gate on a on a MOSFET is a hundred atoms across. Uh, so if if uh, if we could accurately place silicon or silicon dioxide atoms on top of you know a PN junction or or PN channels, uh, we could we could theoretically get to what is like the best MOSFET using that technology. You know, until you get into quantum mechanics. Well, you're, I mean, we're already fighting that as it stands, right? But like. There's there there we could find the optimal arrangement of atoms that is not grown in a heat chamber, you know, with gases yeah. and stuff. E- effectively, we put every atom where we want it to be, and and you basically say, given this materials, this is the best MOSFET that can be for whatever application. Yeah, because if you think about the way they make, uh, uh, why can't I think of CPUs? It's, you know, they do it layer by layer, and it's kind of like a photographic process still. And that's where the limitation comes from. And then, again, in the end, it's just like, oh, you know, materials are laying down where we want them to lay down. But, yeah, you're talking about discrete atomic control. Oh, yeah, yeah. You start off with a a perfectly, I guess, I, we're, this is super idealistic, but you start with a perfectly flat silicon wafer, and then you build yep. on top of that, or you etch out you know, I guess chambers and you put, oh, you no, put no, you, in, can't, you can't etch that's subtractive. Okay. Okay. So yeah, can, I guess, you, you I guess if you start from well, like yeah, the again, very you, bottom. You, you wouldn't need to do that because if you can, if you can arrange molecules, you know, they like, they stick together like little ball bearings you right. know, mm-hmm. in the corners, you know, you could make, well, near perfect walls, you know, they wouldn't be straight because they're, they're molecules. I'm sorry, not molecules, atoms. Uh, yeah. That'd be pretty cool. I mean, I, I'm sure we'll get there at some point. It just takes a, it takes a little bit of time. Chemical processes work a little bit faster than moving individual atoms. 
Right, and then as we've all seen, like Moore's Law is d- totally done, and I think that's why is because we're pushing the limits of. Because you know we're technically still making you know CPUs the same way we were decades ago, just at much higher precision. Yeah. The other thing that would be interesting is the the product that you could produce would be limited by the source materials and the plans, you know, the model. But one machine, in theory, could you know create a wrench, and then the next run it could create a chip. As long as you fed the right kind of goop into it so that it had the right kind of particles to move around. Once it can move once it can move atoms around, it doesn't matter if it's moving those atoms around to create a liver or if it's moving those atoms around to create, you know, a wrench or a integrated circuit or anything. So I've got a really good trademark term for that goop. God goop. God goop. God goop TM. <laughs> Well, wouldn't you have to have some sort of hopper that has a bunch of atoms of different elements? You just have every element, right? Yeah, it's just it's a just slurry of just all the atoms. It's just a hopper that looks like the periodic table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and if you made a lot of if you made a lot of a particular thing, then it would be like the stupid printer ink where your black is out but your magenta for some reason is fine. Yep. Yep. So, you know, one guy's titanium cartridge would be empty and, you know, his uh, neon one would be full and he'd be swearing at us because we're charging him, uh, you know, a million dollars for a new printer cartridge. What actually causes uh, two atoms of titanium to stick together to be a piece of solid titanium? Well, it's it's one of four known forces, the electro... uh, it's the strong force, the weak force, gravity, and... Electromagnetic, right? Electromagnetic, yeah. So they so would the, be electromagnetically connected because they're atoms with electrons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because they, they form bonds. Uh, I'm not entirely sure specifically that material, but it would just be an electromagnetic bond between the two, right? I, we're probably stepping out into territory that we're all not exactly yeah. first in. But I think it's all forces acting because like the strong and weak forces are important too. in that scenario, because that also affects how uh, atoms are bound together. But you're right. We're way out of our. Well, now you're really talking about playing God. Yeah, I know if I know if you have like two really flat pieces of, of similar metal, like let's say two pieces of steel and they're very let's say they're perfectly flat and you stuck them together. They were actually cold well together. Um, and that's actually how they put together pieces like in outer space sometimes is they've been experimenting with this cold welding kind of stuff. Well, you can do that with gauge blocks. That's sort of one of the tests of a good gauge block. You ring them together yeah. and they stick. Bringing them together. Um, so whatever that force is, is what keeps most things together, I think. And, you know, I think if you got to that scale, Chris, you would need some sort of procedural generation as well because think about how much data it would take to store all those atoms as attributes in a device list. An XY location for each one or XYZ. And that's why, that's why I go back to like the loofah because or trees or, you know, you look at the roots of a tree, you look at the branches of a tree and you see patterns. You know, some people call it the thumb of God, but it's like 
it's a fractal mathematics that can define those those complicated structures. Right. So like let's say we're living in a simulated universe and my monitor stand which is made of wood is fake, right? Now, you wouldn't program in all of the atoms to represent the inside of that unless I was to cut it in half, right? So you either have a repeating pattern like a texture in a video game or a procedurally generated pattern and then a define of the outside of it. You know, you only define what is absolutely necessary to define the object. And that's where you get into fractals, the way things grow, repeating patterns and loofah sponges. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like one of those things like, you know, you would actually you'd create an atomic printer and then the things you learn along the way about it, you'd be like, oh, we are living in a simulated universe. <laughs> right. <laughs> or there, there is a God, you know, you would actually learn. You'd actually figure that out in the process of doing this, you know, because if you're talking about like atomic manipulation, like maybe the trick is just to uh, hack the code of a simulated universe. I don't know. I think if we're living in a simulated universe, then coders need to be fired because <laughs> it's really buggy <laughs> is there is there a uh, support ticket system that we can put some tickets in <laughs> thoughts and prayers <laughs> <laughs> thoughts and prayers yeah. <laughs> uh, your call will be answered in the order it was received now they all get reply they all get responded with you know not an issue working as designed it's a feature, mm-hmm. not a bug. Nice. It's like, oh my god, why does water expand when it gets cold instead of contract? Ah, screw it. <laughs> so, hey, <laughs> no, not a uh, polar polar molecules is a a bug in the system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Bethesda designed the universe. <laughs> Earth seventy six. Uh. <laughs> Hey, wait, Chris is one of the five people who like that game, so we get we can't trigger him. Oh, no, I under, it's a deeply flawed game, but I still enjoy playing with my friends. So any other uh, closing topics regarding 3D printers? I don't think so. We've been uh, rambling pretty good for the past hour, so if you all want to sign us out. Okay. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Benjamin Heckendorn. And I was another guest, Chris Kraft. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. See you later, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or loofah that you want Stephen and I to know about, tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at analog eng or emails at podcast at macfab.com also check out our slack channel if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet click that subscribe button that way you get the latest map episode right when it releases and please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us